0: So if you have a Bible, grab it. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the table here, and those are our gift to you. You can download a Bible app on your phone uh, and go to Matthew chapter 13, uh, because that is where we are going to pick up this morning. Hopefully we are going to finish uh, Matthew chapter 13, and then we will be halfway through the Gospel of Matthew. Isn't that amazing? Week 70, and we'll be halfway through the Gospel of Matthew. Now, let me just quickly catch us up on uh, what kind of the trajectory of the Gospel of Matthew is, uh, partially because there's, you know, many of us have like joined in partway through this journey, uh, and also because we've had a few weeks of a break. So, uh, just really take a step back with me for a second. Matthew's goal in writing the Gospel of Matthew is not merely to give us facts about the life of Jesus. It's easy for us to look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and consider them biography. And in a sense, that is true. There's some biographical realities to the Gospel of Matthew. But his main goal, all the Gospel writers' main goal, is to not give us an abridged history of the life of Jesus. Uh, Matthew has an agenda, And it's actually not even a hidden agenda. It's no overt agenda. His desire is not to just tell you facts about Jesus, but his desire is that through the telling of the story of the life and ministry of Jesus, that you would come to this place where you would realize that Jesus is not just a historical figure. He's not just a man. He's not just a prophet. uh, He's not just a wise teacher, but that he himself is God. He himself, and the language that Matthew often uses to describe what Jesus is like and what he's trying to compel us to see in Jesus is that he's messiah. And that word Messiah means rescuer or redeemer, And so ultimately what Matthew's trying to show us through this telling of the story of Jesus is that Jesus is the one who God sent. But he's not just the one who God sent. He's actually God himself in the flesh coming to rescue and redeem, to save a broken humanity, a broken world, to reconcile us, if you will, back to a right relationship with God. And there's a number of ways that Matthew tries to compel us to see Jesus in this life. And one of the ways that is the most relevant for us this morning is in the way that people respond to Jesus. Jesus will do something, he will say something, he will perform a miracle, or he'll preach a sermon, and then following that, there's always a response. And in the response, Matthew's trying to show us that that there's really only one of two ways to respond to Jesus. You either respond to him in faith, believing who he is, uh, believing rather that he is who he said he is, which is what Matthew himself does. If you go back to Matthew chapter 3, you actually see the story of Matthew encountering Jesus, hearing about Jesus, and then going from unbelief to belief or faith in Jesus. But there's also a lot of people, probably more actually, who respond by rejecting Jesus, continuing in their unbelief of who Jesus is. And there's kind of this meta question that is threaded throughout the entire Gospel of Matthew that he keeps coming back to time and time and time again. And it's a really simple question, but it's perhaps the most profound question. I'm a father of four kids, and I tell myself, or I tell my kids rather, that this is the most important question that they will ever answer in their entire life. So while it's simple, I believe it's deeply profound. And the question is, who do you say Jesus is? Who is he? Who is he? And that's the question that we're going to get after this morning in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew is going to present to us Jesus in such a way that we have to answer, we have to wrestle with, we have to to do something with that question, who is he? Who do we say he is? So Matthew chapter 13, if you have your Bible's uh, head over there, picking up in verse 53, here's what Matthew records, he says, when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. So Matthew chapter thirteen, just a quick snapshot of the localized context of what's happening. Matthew chapter thirteen, Jesus had been sitting by the lakeside, he'd been preaching and teaching all these parables, telling people about what the kingdom of heaven is like, and now he's moving from the lakeside and he's going into the town. Uh, he's he's going into the town where he was born. It's going to say in verse uh, fifty-four, his hometown, which is the town of Nazareth. So verse 15. 4 Matthew says this coming to his hometown he began teaching the people in their synagogue. So what's happening Jesus moves from outside of the synagogue sitting down by the lakeside teaching and preaching giving parables about the kingdom of heaven is like and he moves into the synagogue. Now in the synagogue this was the place obviously of corporate worship where a community would come uh, to worship but, but it was more than that. It was also like the center hub of the community. Community The community of Nazareth specifically was a really small community between two and 400 people, roughly. And this was the place where people would gather. And it was not uncommon for in a synagogue uh, for people to uh, come and, and then to have itinerant preachers and teachers. And they'd move from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue. So Jesus is in the synagogue, and he's teaching and preaching. Now look at what he says, and, and, and this is what we need to see here. He preaches, but then not look at what he says, rather look at the response to his teaching, because what we're going to see here, and the first thing that Matthew wants to show us about who Jesus is, is that Jesus is indeed God. So second half of verse 54 says this, And they were amazed. Where did this man get his wisdom and his miraculous powers they asked? So Jesus comes into the synagogue, he starts to teach, and he starts to preach, and it evokes a response in the people who are hearing They're amazed. The word amazed is used a number of times by Matthew to describe people's response to his teaching and preaching. If you go, in fact, to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, as he winds down the Sermon on the Mount, the people's response is that they were amazed. Uh, Another way to translate this word into English is the word astonished. Now, we need to be clear here about what this doesn't mean. What this doesn't mean is they were entertained. right? Like, sometimes you guys are amazed at my teaching, Right? (laughs) <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, well, that's not what this is talking about. This isn't like, wow, Jesus, way to go. You were funny. You were eloquent. Uh, you sure knocked that one out of the park. Uh, that's not what Matthew's trying to describe for us. You see, there's something unique about the amazement that these people had, and it's, it's kind of hinted at or alluded to in the question that they ask. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? So, so what they're not amazed at is uh, it's it's not just the mere content or or the delivery of the teaching and preaching of Jesus. There's something deeper. There's something there's something more more central. Like like it's it's there. You, you kind of feel it in the question. They're wondering where does he get the authority to do these things, to say these things, to have this wisdom? In other words, what is the source? What is the source of the wisdom and the the amazement with which we are hearing this man teach and preach? In other words, what they're saying is we've heard lots of people teach. We have lots of speakers come through here. We have lots of uh, different teachers in the synagogue. But there's something different about this one. There's something that differentiates Jesus' teaching and preaching from the teaching and preaching of everyone else. There's something about the authority with which he speaks. If you have your Bibles, keep your finger in Matthew chapter 13 and turn to the right. Go to Luke chapter 4. Luke writes a similar account of this story in Luke chapter 4. And we get a little bit of a a picture into what is happening here that causes these hearers to be amazed or astonished. So Luke chapter 4, picking up in verse 14, Luke writes this, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Here we go, verse 10, he went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, so you can see the context is the same, as was the custom. He stood up and read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, Uh, Unrolling it, he found its place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom uh, for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind and to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year year of the Lord's favor. There's lots there. I'm just going to skim over that to get to what I really want to get to, which is this, verse 20. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began saying to them, listen to this, listen to what he said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, what Jesus is saying, think about this with me for a second. When someone gets up to teach and preach, when someone like myself gets up to teach and preach, what authority do I stand up here and teach and preach with? It's borrowed authority. I point to the word of God. This is what the Bible says, right? I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. Have you ever heard me say that before? If you don't like something I say, take it up with Jesus. He's the one who wrote this, right? Have I ever said that before? Right. Because I preach with borrowed authority. I'm not preaching my own ideas. Hopefully, I'm not preaching my own thoughts. I'm preaching what the Bible teaches. But Jesus says something different. Jesus says, today, this scripture is fulfilled not even in my doing, in your hearing of it. In other words, the Scripture culminates in me. The Scripture finds its fulfillment in me. The Scripture finds its pers- a, per- a perfect uh, completion or satisfaction in who I am. Why? Because He's God. Matthew wants us. To see that Jesus is God. He's different than every other religious leader. He's different than every other philosopher. He's different than any other teacher or preacher you will ever hear. He doesn't have to point you to somewhere else. He points you to himself because he is God. And you see the reason that Jesus' is teaching and it has been very, was so controversial and it has been very controversial up to this point was because the kinds of things he said were, were very direct. They kind of cut right through all the fog, all the white noise, and got right to the heart of the matter. And actually, just spoiler alert, go down to the end of the chapter, verse 57. The first half of verse 57, look at what it says, those who heard. It says, they took offense at him. They, they don't like him. Why? Because he keeps saying things that are so controversial. And so this obviously begs the question for us, doesn't it? Who do we say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you believe that Jesus is? Have you ever wrestled with that question? Uh, You know, I I think there's a, I don't have to think too hard, I think all of us would agree on some level that there's this kind of trend, especially in the West Coast, kind of what I call espionage, spiritual but not religious kind of worldview, uh, the cultural worldview that we kind of swim in, where, where we have this idea or this mentality when it comes to things of religion, spirituality, that it's kind of like a buffet, there's a spiritual buffet, and you just walk down the buffet with your plate and you decide which dishes on the buffet you're going to eat from. I took my kids to Seattle. We came home and uh, we, we got the buffet. And there was you know lots of things we liked, lots of things we didn't like. We got to pick and choose what we want. It was a very expensive dinner. And they don't eat enough to warrant going to the buffet ever again. Um, but, but a lot of us treat spirituality like that. And a lot of us treat... Jesus, like he's just one dish on the buffet. We're going to take a little piece of him. We like this. We like this. You know, a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of Joe Rogan if you're a dude, a little bit of Oprah if you're a lady, a little bit of Gwyneth Paltrow if you're into like holistic healing and, you know, essential oils or whatever weird thing she's all about these days, right? A little bit of this, a little bit of that, and we just kind of add Jesus to the plate, We like some of the things he says, but some of the things are a little uncomfortable. We pretend he doesn't say those things, and we just kind of push them off to the side. We skip that part of the meal. Here's the problem with that way of viewing Jesus. He doesn't really leave room for that. He doesn't really give that as an option. He doesn't say he's one dish on the buffet. He says I am the buffet. And in fact he uses metaphors like that all the time. Right? He says I'm the bread of life. Whoever eats this bread will never be hungry again. You can eat at the spiritual buffet of McDonald's or you can just eat here and be fully satisfied. In fact in John's gospel There's this incident where Jesus is performing miracles. He's he's feeding people. He's feeding the 5,000. Many of you have heard this story before where he feeds the 5,000 and it's fantastic. There's lots of people around Jesus. They're really interested. He's a nice dish on the buffet. They're really liking what he's serving up on that day. It just seems to work really well for them. It's convenient. He's exciting. He's compelling. And so they follow him. They want to see Come on Jesus, give us more bread. Do more miracles. Dance for us, Jesus. Meet our needs. Be the dish that we want to take from on the buffet. And they come to Jesus and they say, can you make us more bread? And he says this crazy thing. He says, if you want to follow me, here's what you need to do. You need to stop eating from the buffet. He doesn't actually say that. This is like Chris paraphrased to make it fit with what I'm talking about here. He says, you got to stop eating from the buffet. You need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Don't invite Jesus to your Christmas parties because he says stuff like that all the time. What's his point? His point is, if you want me, take all of me. We don't like zero sum. We don't do that very well. We don't like all or nothing. We like buffet. But Jesus says it's all or nothing. Nothing. Now, you can say that when you're not some religious guru, not some spiritual wellness advice columnist, but you're God. You're God. Who do you say Jesus is? Matthew says he's God. There's a second thing that Matthew says about Jesus. Continuing on, picking up in verse 55. So his hearers, Jesus' hearers, they're amazed. He says these things with great wisdom, and he has these miraculous powers, and so they're inquisitive of him. And and look at what they say. Isn't this the carpenter's son? They start asking all these rhetorical questions. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this... Uh, isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James and John, Simon and Judas, and aren't all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? What are, what are they doing here? Well, they're confused. They're, they're kind of confounded. Because on one hand, Jesus is teaching and preaching with, with such authority that he he seems to be God, and Matthew's making the claim he's God. But then on the other hand, and this is the second thing that Matthew wants you to see about Jesus... You look at him, and he's not that impressive. And what Matthew's trying to show us here is that, yes, in every way, Jesus is fully God. But he's also a man. He's fully human. And that's what these these hearers of Jesus' message are, are asking where did he get this wisdom from? Like, he, he's, he's not as learned as we are. He doesn't know all the things we know. He, he doesn't have all the, the schooling that we have. How can he be smarter than us? How can he know more than us? Uh, they say, isn't he, you know, isn't he just the carpenter's son? Like, I remember, like, a few years ago, Jesus and his dad, like, didn't they build us that deck in our backyard? And now he's standing here in the synagogue claiming that he is God? This, this is confusing. This doesn't make sense. Isn't he, isn't his mother's name Mary? Uh, Now, uh, you know, today when we talk about Mary, often Mary's talked about with awe and reverence. That's not how the name Mary would have been used in this context. Again, Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth. Nazareth is a small town between two and four hundred people. And if you're familiar with the birth of Jesus, the story of the birth of Jesus, which we just came out of at Christmas, Jesus was born to Mary. Mary was a virgin. And so Mary had kind of come to Joseph, who was her soon-to-be husband, her her fiancé, and said, oh, I'm pregnant, but don't worry, I didn't sleep around, God got me pregnant. Well, well, in a village of two to 400 people, uh, that word is going to... So Mary didn't have a good reputation in the town of Nazareth, because nobody believed that story. So most people looked at Mary and thought she was, uh, you know, somebody who slept around. They thought she was an adulterer. And when they looked at Jesus standing in the synagogue teaching with such authority, this is what they were thinking. Isn't he the bastard son of Mary? In other words, the hearers look at Jesus and they can't figure him out. They they don't get it, they're confounded. On one hand, he speaks with such authority. But on the other hand, he seems so simple. My suspicion is, on some level, we fall into a similar trap. Now, this is my guess, though. My guess is the trap that we fall into is maybe slightly different than the trap that the original hearers fell into. So while they had a really hard time grappling with, wrestling with the divinity of Jesus, my suspicion is most of us have a really hard time grappling and wrestling with the humanity of Jesus. So so if we were sitting there and we were... Uh, You know, asking the question that is being asked in verse 54, someone came to you and asked the question that is asked in verse 54 which is, where did this man get all this wisdom and all of these miraculous powers? Where did Jesus get his source? Uh, Sorry, what was the source of his authority? Where did it come from? Most of us, especially those of us who grew up in church, would say something like, well, it's because he's God. He's God. It's obvious. And Follow me here for a second, okay? You need to think this morning. While that would be theologically accurate, it would be incomplete. It's not the full answer to say that the reason that Jesus was able to teach and preach the way he was and the reason that Jesus was able to do the things that he did was because he was God. See, I would say most of us probably have a view of Jesus that looks probably something like Clark Kent. Right? Clark Kent, Superman, normal guy. But as soon as trouble hits, what does he do? He rips off his shirt, he chucks his glasses, and he's got a blue jumpsuit, red cape, and a big S on his chest, and he can just go ahead and do whatever he wants. Most of us, when we think about Jesus, that's how we think about him. He's, he's the Clark Kent of first century Palestine. He's sitting there in his Palestinian bathrobe, and as soon as temptation hits, as soon as hardship hits, as soon as something comes his way that he can't handle, a blind person walks up or something significant happens, what does he do? He rips off his Palestinian bathrobe, and underneath is his Superman, his God shirt, and he just plays the God card. It's not accurate. So go back to verse 54 and and ask the question again, where did he get this authority? Where did he get these miraculous powers? Well, we'll, uh, go back to Luke chapter 4 for a second. Luke chapter 4. Again, Luke giving the, the same account of the same story. Here's what Luke says. Look at verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the what? Come on, I know it's cold and dark outside. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the? Spirit. Spirit. What empowered Jesus to teach and preach with the authority he taught and, and preached with? Spirit. In fact, if you go back to Matthew chapter 3, let's go to Matthew chapter 3 really quick. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, we get this picture of the baptism of Jesus. And here's what we see in Matthew chapter 16 through 18. uh, Sorry, Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went out of the water. At that moment, heaven opened up and he saw the. Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him in a voice from heaven that said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Now, if you remember, it's a long time ago, but Matthew chapter 3, the baptism of Jesus is the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. And before Jesus goes to do his public ministry, what happens? He gets anointed with, filled with, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So let's go back to verse 54 and let's ask the question again where does he get his authority from? Where what is the source of his authority? How does he do these miraculous powers? This is really important for you to understand. What is it? It's the spirit. It's the spirit. Now, why is this so important? Why is this so important? It's so important because it gives us a holistic picture of what Jesus is like. I mean, this is what we see in the New Testament. Again, we're going to flip around a little bit more. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul gives us this great picture of what happens to Jesus uh, in his incarnation. In Philippians chapter 2, here's what the Apostle Paul says in verse uh, verse 6. He says, who being in the very nature of God, speaking of Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, or used to his advantage, it says in the NIV. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now there's something really important that we have to understand about Jesus in his humble incarnation, as we see him in Matthew chapter 13. 13. And Paul uses some very specific language here. In verse 6 of Philippians chapter 2, he says that he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or something to be held on tightly. In other words, he didn't grasp it. He released it. Now, let me be clear about something because I don't want to drift into heresy and be burnt at the stake. He didn't cease to be God in that moment. But he released all of the privilege and rights that came with being God. In other words, he humbled himself of those things. And we see this through the life and ministry of Jesus, right? Like there's instances where Jesus prays. Why does Jesus have to pray? If Jesus is God, if that's the answer to verse 54, Jesus Jesus is God, that's where he gets all his authority, then why does he pray? Because he wants to stay connected to his father. Oh, We see this when Jesus gets asked questions about things that are going to happen in the future. What does he say? I don't know. You have to talk to my father. What's happening? Jesus is limiting himself. In John chapter 17, perhaps the most pronounced example of this, Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 5, he says, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. In other words, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, God, give me the glory I had before I came from heaven to earth, before I allowed myself to be limited. It's really, really, really important that we understand that yes, Jesus was fully God, but that he was also fully man and that it was the spirit of God that enabled him to do the things that he did. It's so important. Jesus is a picture for us of what it looks like to walk fully in light of the Spirit. In other words, to use a West Villageism, what we see in the life and ministry of Jesus is the ultimate example of what it looks like to live. Explanation. Now, why is this important for us? I mean, there's there's a lot of reasons. I'm going to give us three this morning. Kind of have a sermon and a half crammed in here. First one is this. When we diminish the humanity of Jesus, when we lessen the humanity of Jesus, when we answer verse 54 by saying, well, he did those things just because he was God, and we don't understand that it was actually the Spirit enabling Jesus to be obedient to the will of the Father. When we diminish Jesus' humanity, we diminish God's work in our very own lives. What do I mean? Well, it's easy for us to look at Jesus just as the hearers of this sermon that he was preaching in the synagogue in Matthew chapter 13 did, and look at him and completely miss the fact that it was an act of God's grace that was enabling him to do these things. I mean, think about this with me for a second. They were looking at Jesus, and again, they, they misunderstood Jesus in, in a sense in the opposite way that we did. They diminished his deity, we diminished his humanity. They're looking at Jesus, and they said, well, because of uh, his humble beginnings, because of his background, there's no way this man could be God. What we tend to do is look at what Jesus did and say, well, because he's God, there's... Obviously, he's able to do those things. And so they miss out on the grace of God because they don't recognize that he is God. We miss out on the grace of God because we miss out on what God could actually do in our lives if we would humble ourselves and submit ourselves to the Spirit. Uh, so there's some of us who are sitting here this morning, and we actually resonate with uh, some of these questions that are being asked of Jesus, right? We look at our lives and we compare them to the life of Jesus. We're like, yeah, that, that sounds like me. We, we kind of come from humble beginnings, we feel like we don't have enough. We feel like we're not good enough. We feel like we're, 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 we're broken. We're messed up. We're, we're ill-equipped. We're inadequate. We're, we don't have enough money. We don't have enough stuff. We have health problems. There's all kinds of stuff going on, and we just feel unworthy. Well, recognizing that it's the Spirit of God that worked in the life of Of Jesus through those humble beginnings actually encourages us. We don't miss out on the grace of God when we recognize that it's the Spirit of God, not the Godness of Jesus, that enabled him to do what he did. What we realize is that we too have. Been, we've too have been uh, given a spirit of adoption. We too have been given the power of the spirit. We too have been given new hearts. We too have been changed and transformed. We too have been given the righteousness of Christ. And so no matter how broken we are, no matter how disheveled we feel, no matter how unworthy we feel, uh, the spirit of God comes into our life and, and says, you know, if I work through Jesus in this way, I'm going to work in your life in a similar way. And some of us, we miss out on the grace of God because we don't recognize the humanity of Jesus. But then some of us miss out on the grace of God in a different way. We're not in the camp where we feel sorry for ourselves. We're in the camp where we think uh, we've got our lives figured out. We're self-made. We have enough. We have everything we need. And we miss out on the grace of God because we believe that we have somehow achieved the place that we're in. My guess in this room is that's probably more the case. And we miss out on the grace of God because we fail to recognize that every single thing we have comes from his hand. Where you were born, who you were born to, where you got to go to school, every opportunity, the fact that you have breath in your lungs in this very moment is a gift that God gave you. And when we fail to recognize the humanity of Jesus, we fail to recognize God's work in our own lives. There's a second thing, though. When we diminish the humanity of Jesus, we also diminish the work of God, not just in our lives, but through our lives. It's easy to look at the life and ministry of Jesus and say something like this. I've already alluded to the fact that we say this, but while he was God, I could never do what he did. And in one sense, there's some truth to that. We we can never obey the Father in the same way that Jesus did. But my suspicion is that many of us use that as an excuse to not even try. So let me ask a question. If what empowered Jesus to do works of ministry was the Spirit, would you, if you were to take an honest, sober look at your own life, would you say, that your life is one that is also empowered by the Spirit? Or another way to phrase this question, to live the life that you're currently living, do you need the power of God? See, some of us long for more of God in our lives, but there's actually no room for him. Again, we we have everything we need. The idea of praying for daily bread, like we are commanded to by Jesus, is a completely foreign prayer. We've never had to pray for that. The idea of wondering where we're going to sleep tonight, for many of us, is not a concern. We have everything. And then some. And so there's no sense in which we need to depend on God. And so it's not a wonder why the Spirit of God doesn't work in your life, and it's not a wonder why the Spirit of God doesn't work through your life. You you don't actually need them. There's many of us who are going like, man, I just want God to do something great through my life. Have you given them space to do that? Have you put yourself in a situation, not irresponsibly, but where it's like, God, if you don't show up, I'm not sure I'm going to make it. I promise you, you will pray more, you will trust more, you believe more, and you will see God work in your life in more significant ways. The third thing is this when we diminish the humanity of Jesus, not only do we diminish the work that He does in us, not only does He do not only does it diminish the work that He does through us, but it also we diminish the work that God does in His church. Uh, There is a reality that we have to face in this current moment that we sit in and that is that for the first time in the history I think of the world we are in what is called a post-christian society or a post-christian context meaning this there have been pre-christian contexts where a missionary goes into a community where they've never heard the gospel before and they preach the gospel and the church is built up there's been christian contexts or societies where the church is established and it's a real thing but then now, there's what we call post Christian societies, and that's much of the Western world, Europe and Canada in particular. And there's two realities that we have to face with regards to uh, two issues, I guess, with regards to what it means to be the church in, the, in a post Christian context. The first one is this that the culture, and this isn't a surprise to anyone, but is growing increasingly hostile to the church. So, before what happens is, uh, you know, somebody grows up in the church, they turn 20, they leave the church, they get married, they have uh, kids, they turn 30, they come back to church because they want their kids to learn good morals and values. Well, now that's not the case. Now kids are not brought up in the church, they turn 30, they have kids, maybe even older than that, and have kids. And when they want their kids to learn good values, they don't say, we should go back to church. They say, make sure you keep your kids away from church. The exclusivity of Christ, the Christian sex ethics, some of these things, these are completely contrary to the cultural moment we live in. And so the culture is increasingly hostile towards the church. But here's the second thing, and this is the point that I really want to make with regards to what Matthew 13 is talking about. The church is becoming increasingly anemic, powerless, impotent in the face of the tidal wave that is secularism. Uh, Mark Sayers, who's a pastor in Australia and a bit of a cultural uh, anthropologist, says this in his book, The Disappearing Church, much of the Western church is operating on the kinetic forward motion of previous moves of God lounging on a platform built by the service and ministry of past and passing generations. However, the fuel tank is fast approaching empty. In other words, what Mark Sayers is saying is we keep rehashing old ideas. We keep trying the old things in new ways. Functionally, what he's saying here is we're just putting lipstick on a pig. But we're making little to no difference when it comes to seeing people come to faith in Jesus. The church is anemic, it's weak, it's impotent. A question that uh, the Spirit of God put in front of me last year that I'm carrying with me heading into 2020 that in many ways haunts me is this question, what would it take to raise the dead? What would it take to raise the dead? That is what we've been called to as a church is to fill our city with the knowledge of the glory of God for people to move from death to life as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter two. And if your mission was to go out tomorrow in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in the school that you attend and to raise the dead, what would you do? What would you bring What gifts would you need? The answer, of course, is we'd be hopeless and powerless. You would need a move of God. You would need the Spirit. And that's my point when we deny that it's the Spirit that empowered Jesus to do ministry, that he was fully human yet filled with the Spirit, when we deny that, when we deny that as individuals and we deny that as a church, maybe we don't outwardly deny it, but we live with it, unbelief in our heart in the way that we live, then the reality is we have nothing. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, the flesh counts for nothing, but the Spirit Brings life. Late last night, I don't sleep well when my wife is away. Uh, she's away right now, and so late last night I was just listening to sermons. I'm sure everybody does that late at night, right? Came across this sermon. I just took my laptop up and started typing and sent it to Nathan at, I don't know, 11 o'clock and said, Can you try and get this in the media show for me? And he said, Yep. David Platt said this. He said, you and I are tempted every day in our lives and in our churches to do the work of God apart from the power of God. We've created a whole host of means and methods in the church today that require little, if any help at all, from the Holy Spirit of God. We don't have to fast and pray for the church to grow. We have marketing for that. We don't have to pray for people to come to know Jesus. We have publicity for that. It is possible, dangerously possible, for you and I to continue on the machinery and activity of the churches we lead or participate in, and it can be smooth. It can be successful. And we would never notice that the Holy Spirit is absent from it. If we are not careful, we will deceive ourselves, mistaking the presence of physical bodies in a building for spiritual life in the church. And this is the part that just wrecked me. I wonder if the greatest hindrance to the advancement of the gospel in our modern day may be the people of God attempting to do the work of God apart from the Spirit of God. Maybe the greatest barrier to the spread of the gospel isn't the hostile culture or the self-indulgent immoral culture, but rather the self-sufficiency of the church that is evident in our lack of need for the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit. Without the Spirit, we have nothing. And what Jesus what Matthew is trying to show us through the life of Jesus is that Jesus needed the Spirit to obey the Father, and we need the Spirit to do the works that the Father has called us to do. And so I come back to this question, who do you say Jesus is? Because it's easy to pitch that question to the non-Christian. To the person who's here visiting, to the person who's new to faith or on a faith journey, and say, "Man, you need to believe Jesus is God." And and I, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer, you don't know Jesus, you're new, you're checking this out, or you're you're hanging around with us, and and you're on a faith journey, and you're you're just trying to figure it all out. I ask that question: You, who do you say Jesus is? Do you believe he is God? But to us, who are followers of Jesus, who have been in the church, especially those of us who have been doing this for a long time, dance. Who do you say Jesus is? Do you believe that he's a spirit-empowered man, and we need to learn from his example that we too must be spirit-filled? I'll wind down just by looking at verses 57. Here's what... Matthew records, verse 57, he says, and they took offense at him. They hear this message of Jesus and they're offended. The non-believers are offended, the believers are offended because Jesus is constantly saying things that instantly coming after our heart and saying, I want all of you. I don't want you to just believe that I'm God. I don't want to just have rule and reign over the God box in your heart, but I want to have rule and reign over everything. I want to have rule and reign over your finances. I want to have rule and reign over your sex ethic. I want to have rule and reign over your Netflix account. I want to have rule and reign over your web browser. I want to have rule and reign over your wallet. I want to have rule and reign over every part of your life. We're like, we don't want that. We get offended. That's when we tune out. That's when we go to our phone. But then look at what happens next. Second half of verse 57. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his hometown. And then verse 58, and these are sobering words. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. What happens? He leaves. In Matthew's gospel, this is the last time Jesus teaches in a synagogue. From this point forward, he's going to spend most of his time heading towards Jerusalem. But he's going to be in the marginalized outskirts of all the towns where all the non-believers are living and hanging out. Saying, if you don't want me, I'm going to leave. And so again, the question, who is Jesus? It rings so true and so relevant as we look at the fact that at some point, friends, he's going to leave. He's going to let you have what you want. If you're here and you're new, you're figuring this thing out at some point, he's going to say, okay, fine. You don't want to believe, that's fine. I've been pursuing you for a very long time. I've put people in your life. I've put this church in your life. My spirit's been coming after you, but if you're going to continue to deny me and reject me, I'm going to leave. But he's going to leave the church. He's going to leave you. If you continue to live in denial of your need for the power of the Spirit, at some point he's going to say, fine, have it your way. We see this in Revelation. He takes the lampstand away from the churches that fail to love him. God is gracious and he is loving and he is kind, but he wants us. He wants us. Do we want him? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have not left, that you are long-suffering, that you persevere despite our rebellion, our hard-heartedness, our folly, our self-sufficiency, the lies that we believe that we somehow don't need you. that you continue to come, you continue to pursue, you continue to sit with, just as you, Jesus, like you, you, you gave up deity to come in the flesh. You humbled yourself. So too right now, are you're patient with us. You're patient with our hard-heartedness. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't treat that with contempt. But that we would respond by opening our lives, our hands, our hearts, all all of our all of who we are to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.